Welcome to Rights Up Right Now, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm Kira Alman. In this episode, I'll be talking about the death penalty in India with Anoop Surendranath, a law professor at the National Law University in Delhi and director of the university's Center on the Death Penalty. The death penalty was written into the colonial penal code in India when the country was under British direct rule, and it stayed on the books after independence. Today, India remains a retentionist country, meaning that it retains the death penalty in the face of a growing global movement to abolish it worldwide on human rights grounds. Over 100 countries have abolished the death penalty to date, and many more are abolitionist in practice if not in law. However, India still carries out executions, and its courts regularly hand down over 100 death sentences each year. Some of those sentences later get commuted or acquitted. At the end of 2017, there were 371 prisoners on death row in India. India is one of the few democracies that retains the death penalty. Capital punishment often shines a spotlight on some of the most challenging questions about human rights and how to protect them. Public opinion in retentionist states, including India, tends to favor the death penalty, but human rights lawyers and advocates argue that the state should not have the power of life or death over its prisoners, and rights can't be subject to public whims or sentiments. In thinking about the ways that the death penalty has been applied or abolished, it's important to remember that the nature and justification of the death penalty differs from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, and generalizations about the death penalty in the abstract can be misleading. The challenges to abolition in India differ from those in the United States, for instance. So I'm here with Anoop Surendranath, who's going to talk about those challenges in relation to the death penalty in India in particular. Thank you so much for joining me, Anoop. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. I think to get started, we should just get a sense of the scale of the issue we're talking about today. So what's the status of the death penalty in Indian law? And how many people are on death row? And how many people in India are executed uh, or have been executed in recent years? Uh, so uh, we have um, the death penalty primarily under our Indian Penal Code. Most uh, vast majority of the death sentences are on the Indian Penal Code, which is a federal legislation. Um, it's a colonial legislation as well, um, and but totally we have about uh, under the federal law uh, fifty-eight provisions that that attract the death penalty. Uh, we do not have uh, a mandatory death sentence uh, under our law. Uh, the Supreme Court has struck it down, uh, and uh, high courts have struck down mandatory death penalty for drug offenses as well. Uh, so none of our uh, laws have uh, the mandatory death sentence in that sense. It's all sentencing judges always have to choose between the uh, life imprisonment and the death penalty. Um, And the criminal procedure code says that uh, life imprisonment should be the sort of default option. uh, And if sentencing judges want to give the death sentence instead of the life imprisonment, they have to provide special reasons. Um, So... Most of the death sentences that we see are for murder and um, uh, rape with murder. Uh, in terms of the scale of the death penalty, um, India's sentences on average over the last 15 years 
um, around 130 people to death. Uh, by the new death sentences every year uh, by the trial courts are about 130. institutional reluctance to execute so i don't i mean in that sense when i say f four people have been executed in 17 years it does not quite capture the sentiment and the sort of systemic affinity to the death penalty um and and the popular sentiment as well um the death penalty in india has sort of revived in its popularity in light of the delhi gang rape case in 2012 um and therefore in that sense terrorism and sexual violence are the two main drivers of popular sentiment on the death penalty. Retentionist states seem to universally face this challenge, that popular sentiment tends to favor the death penalty. You mentioned some recent events that have reignited that sentiment in India, including the Delhi gang rape case. So for listeners who might not be familiar with that, it was an incident in 2012 where a young woman was beaten and raped on a bus one night on her way home from seeing a film. She ultimately died of her injuries and her death sparked widespread protests. Could you talk maybe a little bit more about cases like this and where support for the death penalty in India comes from? I think um, I think it's been very, even where in retention jurisdictions that have uh, repealed the death penalty through parliamentary procedures, it has been despite the popular support for it. It's never been that the numbers have favored abolition and then the parliament has gone ahead and given voice to that um, um, popular sentiment. Um, I think in uh, in India, uh, it's it has been this history of repeated uh, terror attacks and uh, very worrying numbers on uh, and incidents on sexual violence and the incapacity of the state to respond in sort of any meaningful manner. Uh, to that violence, um, where the political establishment has then, as with other retention jurisdictions, shown that this is the strong response to these crimes, that we need to s stand up and send a strong message across, and that somehow will, um, uh, that somehow seems to satisfy uh, the sort of public conscience on this. Uh, but I guess it's there for everyone to see that these are very um, even if you take sexual violence, it's it's a very uh, deep and complicated problem um, which cannot just be solved uh, where harsh punishments are not um, the answer. And I think it's always interesting to see, like if you take a particular incident and ask people, would you sentence this person to death? They would always say, they tend to say yes, or most would say yes. But if you f sort of ask the question in a different context and not in the emotional moment in the aftermath of an immediate incident. Uh, if you ask people, rate the following responses uh, in terms of the efficacy to address sexual violence against women, and you gave a list of options like better education in our schools, uh, better orientation, uh, better uh, law and order, uh, better policing, better investigation, and, you in, and, and in that, if you inserted the death penalty as an option, the death penalty would rank pretty low as a response, right? So I think it 
tells something about um, uh, the sort of sentiment that people have in the aftermath of a case uh, where um, the political class is most vulnerable, saying, how could you let something like this happen? And then the response comes as, let's punish these people and sort of send a strong message. So I think that's, and, and I think discussions in India on the death penalty tend to happen around specific incidents and around specific executions. And that probably is the worst time to debate the death penalty because uh, emotions are uh, at, at that point at an extreme and uh, there's just no space for um, uh, sort of uh, reasonable uh, and honest discussion on what really is the death penalty about. I think there's generally an optimistic feeling that more and more countries are adopting abolitionist approaches to the death penalty, but every country context and regional context is different. So where do you see India headed? Even if you look at the region of South Asia, if you look at uh, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, uh, Sri Lanka, um, you'll see both in Pakistan and Bangladesh uh, the death penalty returning in a big way over the last few years. Pakistan more or less had a moratorium on executions, and then after the school attack in Peshawar, you see hundreds of executions in the last couple of years. And Bangladesh, with its war crimes uh, from the 1970 tribunal, it has made a comeback. So I think that it's interesting to see. Of course, Sri Lanka has a moratorium on executions. Um, Sri Lanka does not execute it, though it has it on the books, but I guess Sri Lanka faces another set of problems in terms of uh, what it did with its civil war and uh, all of that. So I think the region is in an interesting phase for this because uh, I think much as we would like to have a narrative of more and more countries um, going the abolitionist route and there's a certain advocacy strategy to that, I think at least for for South Asia, it's bucks that trend and it's in the reverse I think it's you actually see a rising popularity for uh, the death penalty uh, so yeah well globally yes more and more countries might be moving towards uh, de facto or actual abolition but in South Asia uh, in these three countries um, Pakistan Bangladesh and India it's quite alive and kicking yeah The context-specific analysis of the death penalty is so important because when we talk about the death penalty in the abstract, we can begin to forget that each retentionist country has its own logic for maintaining the death penalty. And, of course, every lawyer working on the death penalty also has their own justification or motivations for doing that. So I'm wondering what made you personally decide to work on the death penalty? Yeah, I think my first real introduction to the death penalty was on the BCL uh, in the comparative human rights course, which was then taught by uh, Christopher McCradden. That's the Bachelor of Civil Law course, which you did here at Oxford. Uh, I mean, that was my first real academic introduction. But when I went back, um, uh, within just a couple of months of returning to India, uh, there was an execution that took place of a person who was convicted and sentenced to death uh, for his role in the attack on our parliament. Um, and I think it was it really struck me about, uh, it was a very secret execution and just it was just announced over the news one fine morning that uh, this person was executed. Uh, and nobody knew that an execution date had been set or, or if all other remedies had been, and there was a court process, the Supreme Court had confirmed and the president had rejected his clemency petition, but there were still there were other options that 
uh, he could have explored or the family wasn't informed in time and so we just finally were confronted with this news that this person's executed and um it for me it was that was quite shocking that sort of a democracy like ours a strong constitutional democracy that despite all its democratic challenges the constitution has been more or less stable uh, particularly if you look at the history of the region it stands out as a um, quite a stable democracy um so in that sense it was unimaginable about how little we knew about the actual aspects of the administration of the death penalty there was very little understanding of who these prisoners were or how were they treated in prison how does the execution i mean how what is this what are these nitty gritties about execution about legal representation and uh, what are their life stories and and i felt that uh, if we were to actually somewhere down the line have a honest conversation about this as a society we need to give people more information and we need to bring out a lot more about the aspects of uh, the administration of the death penalty so that it's not just about people committing horrible crimes and that kind of abstraction is very easy in that kind of at that level of abstraction to support the death penalty was that where the idea for the center on the death penalty came from that was a motivation for me to suggest to the university to where i was teaching um that we do this and you know if you know the uh, lay of the land on indian law schools it's quite rare for uh this this kind of work to be backed i think the, the the administration of the law school understood why it's important and uh it financially backed it i mean of course it was expensive because we had to interview all of the death row prisoners we tracked down each of their families uh sort of using our own mini army of our undergraduate uh, law students um and, and 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 i guess i mean at that point i didn't think it was uh going to lead to a litigation in interventions and representing death row prisoners and setting up a permanent center on it and um having 19 full time staff members and it is it has it has just grown uh very fast and in very un, unexpected ways at that point for me it's fascinating that a law school in india has given us space to do this and uh, uh understands that it's part of its mandate to educate its students and yet contribute to a society like in india we're a publicly funded university uh and understands that nuance that by being publicly funded there's a certain sense of social obligation and this is perhaps one way of giving back so what did your team's initial research into the death penalty reveal so we started the research in may 2013 and we published the report in uh may 2016 uh so it took us 3 years um and and it's publicly available on our website for free so please do download it and read it uh uh i i think as with all other retention jurisdictions we found that the burden of the death penalty falls on the most marginalized sections of our population i mean it's the low caste it's religious minorities it's the poor it's the illiterate um so in that sense multiple axes of disadvantage uh intersected as to who was getting this who was getting the death penalty and it was interesting to see that as we went from the trial court to the high court to the supreme court to the clemency stage to clemency rejection uh the concentration of this kind of marginalization just kept increasing so the people who were 
who are able to drop out of this at different levels uh, were less and less the marginalized. So as you ended up towards the top of the pyramid, there's a concentration of uh, marginalized, marginalized populations. And, and I guess that's true of um, most of the retention jurisdictions. All of, I mean, by virtue of being so poor, they've had terrible legal representation. I mean, quite counterintuitively, they have not relied on legal aid in the trial court level and the high court level. Because in the prison, the narrative is that legal aid lawyers are corrupt. Uh, they collude with the prosecution. They take money from the victim's family. Uh, and therefore, there's a, there, there's a strong urge to do whatever you can, despite being extremely poor, to get a private lawyer. So families drive themselves into further debt. And anyway, they're able to play these private lawyers so little, it does not translate into good quality legal representation. So it's not like, oh, they got private lawyers and therefore got legal good legal representation. It's just not happened. But I think the this work on this aspect was important because it's sort of very basic empirical work that any court must confront when there's a constitutional challenge to the death penalty. And when the constitutionality of the death penalty was upheld uh, by the Indian Supreme Court in 1980, there's hardly any empirical evidence it, that was there before it. Um, and we want to be sure that when the next challenge does happen, uh, there's a lot of empirical evidence before it. And apart from socioeconomic characteristics of death row inmates, uh, did you discover anything else about the legal system or their experiences that really stood out or stayed with you? Uh, so apart from the socioeconomic profile, we looked at different stages of the criminal justice system and how each of these prisoners, what was their experience with how they were arrested, how their cases were investigated, uh, what kind of legal representation did they get, uh, how were their trials conducted, what are the conditions of incarceration of death row prisoners? And it's 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 interesting to see at the multiple points at which the criminal justice system is broken, starting with a very um, violent uh, uh, method of investigation where a lot there's rampant use of torture, conditions of incarceration. I mean, there's this theater of death, I suppose. Uh, death row barracks are very often very close to the gallows because India executes by hanging. Um, and very often prisoners on death row, uh, the gallows are in their constant view. They can see them from uh, where they're kept. And some prisons have this practice of taking death row prisoners when they first come to the prison, to the gallows and showing them that this is where you will be hanged before they take them to the barracks. And... Um, they are, they are kept apart from their, all the other prison population. They're not allowed to participate in those general prison activities. Again, different prisons have different practices of this. Um, uh, I think these kind of details about to, to take the conversation beyond the crimes that they have committed. And there's a lot more to the death penalty than that. And it's to force a conversation on those issues by presenting this uh, kind of research and work on that. When you were doing this research, you weren't intending to get involved directly in the litigation, is that right? You weren't planning on actually participating in the prisoners' legal cases. We were very clear at that point to the prisoners that we wouldn't be offering any legal assistance. And I think that increasingly it became more and more burdensome for us to keep saying no 
and it i guess once we finished the round of interviews uh and we were, we're getting into the analysis phase and the writing and all of that we started uh responding to those requests by saying okay let's start litigating these cases so that's how you wound up starting a litigation clinic so because anyway the prisoners were writing to us the families were writing to us and we just felt it would be inhumane to have seen and uh in some sense ask them to talk about all of these things to us and then when they're seeking your assistance not to respond i guess the moral weight of that was just too much to not do something about it and say oh we are a university and this is not the kind of thing we do uh so we started litigating these cases and now we represent about 65 death row prisoners yeah it's been a challenge i mean it's navigating uh and most of the cases are in the supreme court so basically trying to undo uh, very fundamental errors that were made in the courts below by lawyers not focusing sufficiently on the evidence and not exploring uh and a big part of our practice is that in every case we challenge the conviction uh it's not just challenging the sentence um so it it raises its own challenges of asking a supreme court to somehow relook at the evidence which two courts have looked at and confirm the conviction and and affirm the death sentence so what's the most problematic aspect of the death penalty for you why should we be thinking about the death penalty as a human rights crisis i i think the uh the the crisis really is that um we have i think misunderstood the problem of the death penalty in india that a lot of focus has been on frameworks in which the death penalty is looked at in the US or China uh saying oh how many people are we executing um right um and and that is not um that that concern to that extent does not play out in the indian context um and i think what really is a crisis is as sentencing these 130 people to death uh and them and because of a largely slow criminal justice system them staying on death row uh, for long periods um and what and i think what is what has not happened is focusing on the torture of the experience of being on death row i think very often conversations on why the death penalty is cruel focuses on the moment of death uh and that that are people afraid to die is it painful i think that misses a large part of the cruelty of the death penalty and if you were to move away from that and not look at the that moment or the fact of death as such and look at the experience of having to live every day not knowing whether you're going to live or die um and in these kind of conditions that i'm talking about um you will see that prolonged incarceration on death row is the problem and that's where you need to start focusing So what makes this a human rights issue in the first place? You've used words like torture and cruel to describe death sentences. How would you explain the cruelty of a death sentence to somebody who may not see it that way? I think stripped of all other arguments, right? Um it comes down to how do we view crime as people, right? Uh at at a very personal level when you see a crime being committed, right let's take i guess many people who agree that rape and murder of a child um is is right up there in terms of uh 
a certain moral abhorrence in terms of the activity. So how do you view somebody who does that, right? Do you view that person as, um, as fundamentally evil and bad and frame it purely in the context of individual responsibility that uh, it is only that individual and no nothing else and no one else who can share the responsibility of what was done to that child, right? And in that sense, do you construct this uh, image of somebody being evil? Or do you say crime is a lot more complex? Why people do certain things um, is, is, is a mixture of factors, right? And I think fundamentally for me, there's a need to acknowledge that society has a role to play in that. It is never pure individual failure in that sense. Of course there is. It's not to say that the, in, the individual bears no responsibility, but I think society also bears a responsibility. And then and in, in various ways, I mean, it's, we can have a, a very complicated discussion how society contributes uh, to that individual ending up doing that. Right? In that context for society to take life, I think is is hypocrisy really i mean to it's unacceptable because it's in some senses it's society's own contribution that has created that that crime and and again it sounds very much like i'm trying to exonerate the offender on this basis and it certainly isn't but to say let's acknowledge all contributions to this uh, i think stripped of all other arguments around the death penalty it comes down to this uh, this very fundamental disagreement. Is there an abolition movement in India? What's the likelihood of abolishing the death penalty, do you think? A, there is no movement really, like the like the kind you might see in the United States. Um, and it's very interesting why. I mean, it's, it's something to think about why in so many years there hasn't been. The engagement on the death penalty has been just these, uh, some individual lawyers who have uh, in a very dedicated and passionate manner fought these cases when they have reached the very brink. Uh, but a sort of sustained, consistent engagement on the death penalty has been lacking. Um, and there's no movement. And I think a large part of it is around this issue that I said of since executions are few, there doesn't seem to be that uh, momentum to keep it and sort of tragic momentum. Uh, to keep it going. Uh, but as I said, th that does not indicate any institutional reluctance to execute. And we've just, I think, it's just been fortunate that we haven't seen uh, more executions because of the efforts of uh, certain individuals who have been, throughout the careers, been doing fantastic work. But a sort of an organized movement is lacking. And part of where we see ourselves is sort of laying the foundation in terms of doing different kinds of work on the death penalty. Like now we're doing a project on the mental health of death row prisoners with India's leading mental health hospital. Um, we are looking at trial court sentencing across 15 years in the three death penalty heavy states. What we're trying to do is um, present research on different aspects of the death penalty and sort of generate that knowledge base that people can use and engage with um, towards building this movement, if you may. Uh, being a university, we are, sort of have that unique advantage to be able to take up those kinds of exercises and get access to prisons. And as, and as a university, that's our role. I mean, that should be a function of a university in societies like ours to sort of ask the difficult questions 
and find answers and directions along which our societies might evolve. Uh, and I think that's a larger public function of university. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Anoop, for coming on the podcast to talk about your work in India and to help us understand the death penalty a little bit more. Thank you so much for your time and the conversation today. It really was enjoyable. Thank you. Rights Up, Right Now is a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. It's produced by me, Kira Allman, and music for this series is by Rosemary Allman. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or follow us on SoundCloud. 